This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock, back for 2021. Later in the programme, we'll hear how stories about the red-hot housing market here are on the up in the media, much like house prices almost everywhere. But much of those stories are pitched at those who have the houses, not the have-nots. If you're a homeowner in the Bay of Plenty, get out the champagne. Also, the event that usually kicks off the political year for our media fell flat this week when political players and reporters alike weren't invited. But a former reporter tells us that may be no bad thing. And we'll also hear how a former politician and talkback host with a long history of causing offence got the boot again this week for racist blurts on a national network. And his supposedly unreserved apology wasn't exactly comprehensive. Jesus, this is disgusting, Banksy. What's disgusting? We're just talking the truth here. But before all that, Media Watch has been off the air since last Christmas. So, anything much in the media since then? All right, we'll get back to the phones in just a moment. Time now is 10 minutes past six. This is News Talk ZB Breaking News. Um, this is tragic. This has just come through from Waihi Beach tonight. Police have just sent out a message to say that one person has died this afternoon following an incident at Waihi Beach. Emergency services were called about 10 past 5 after reports of a woman being injured in the water. Initial indications suggest she may have been injured by a shark. That was News Talk ZB back on the 11th of January with genuinely shocking news. In a normal news-starved summer's gone by, the mere sighting of a shark anywhere near shore somewhere was enough to make front-page headlines and lead broadcast news bulletins nationwide. But not in the summer of 2020-2021. Just 10 minutes earlier that day, News Talk ZB's 6 o'clock news bulletin began like this. America and the world is struggling to make sense of the surreal scenes of violence in Washington, D.C. today. I can't frankly believe there are still Republicans tonight siding with the people who stormed the Capitol, who are wearing animal pelts and horns and scaling down the walls of the U.S. Senate. It's absurd. And that weirdness in Washington and the fallout from it led the news worldwide for days. But with our election done and dusted last October and COVID-19 apparently under control here, things were a lot calmer by contrast in Aotearoa. Though, a bit like in the US, there was some anger directed at a long-established institution in the capital, RNZ, back on Boxing Day. Well, in this hour, I have a concert for you featuring Avantdale Bowling Club, a jazz hip-hop collective founded by rapper and main songwriter Tom Scott. Milk in the monarchy, tongue over the parliament's a party that a man's DJing it. But I ain't playing it. I jumped up in the Uber and told the pilot to take me back home. That was Avantdale Bowling Club, recorded live at the power station back in August 2019. And judging by the texts, some of you absolutely loathed it and others loved it. While that anger went unnoticed overseas, New Zealand's reputation as a safe haven in the world didn't. Charlie Brooker wrote it into his Netflix retrospective mockumentary Death to 2020 in the character of a tech billionaire called Bark Multiverse. I realised our whole world could collapse into chaos and disaster and here's me, one of the richest people on the planet in a position to actually do something about it. As soon as she finished speaking, I hit the phone, got my people to buy a mountain in New Zealand, had it hollered out, and here we are, in my survival bunker. 
Don't people call you selfish? I don't know. It's soundproof. Now, also in Death to 2020, there was a Californian soccer mom called Kathy, who was a sponge for political and medical misinformation on the platforms run by the real U.S. tech billionaires. Well, someone from my PTA WhatsApp group uh, shared a link to a documentary which um, proves that George Soros created the virus in a Chinese lab uh, so that Bill Gates could make a vaccine out of microchips and control us all like we're in a video game. And while that was just a joke for a comedy program, you only had to tune into Summer Talkback Radio here for a short time to hear how online nonsense is swaying people in New Zealand in real life as well. Here's Rosemary, for example, telling News Talk ZB's Tim Roxburgh what was in her Facebook feed about that turmoil in Washington. Antifa being violent over on the left. Yeah. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Antifa did not storm, they did not storm the Capitol. That's your opinion because you're... No, that's a fact. Yeah, hang on, hang on. There's been a lot of violence on the left as well. Antifa were injuring people and smashing No, they weren't. And soon after that, octogenarian Roy rang in with his tips from YouTube. For the first time in my 80 years, I'm quite quite scared. About what? Well, this this uh, censoring our freedom of speech. There's a guy on the um, the YouTube called History Debunked. People yeah. should listen to him. Yeah. It only takes five minutes. Okay. Good on you, Roy. People relying on social media for their information is a problem that's clearly not going away. But for most of us here in New Zealand, it's been a peaceful and COVID-free summer so far. And lately, talk radio hosts have been returning from their holidays, giving thanks for all of that. And unlike almost any other developed country in the world, we are largely COVID-free. We have not had a case inside our borders for two months, which is just remarkable. So what are we doing? We're doing what New Zealanders have done for years. We're enjoying summer. Sean Plunkett on the Magic Talk station and so was Magic Talk fill-in morning host John Banks. We are pretty blessed, aren't we? Gratitude is something that comes to mind. Though for this fundamentalist Christian, none of his gratitude was for the government or the experts. We are grateful. I believe it's an act of God, not the government, an act of God that has saved us from the terrifying ordeal that the UK citizens have unfolding all around them. It can't just be Jacinda Ardern and the Labour government. It has to be an act of God. Well, God didn't save John Banks from an undignified early exit from the Magic Talk Station, as we'll hear later in this programme. And with things going so well in New Zealand, John Banks reached for other topics to fill the holiday talkback void. I don't think uh, that... People teach kids how to eat food any longer, do they? I mean, I've seen some of these rats eating food. You see them in these uh, fast food restaurants. Uh, most people, most young people these days don't even know how to use a knife and fork properly. So how would they be able to teach their kids how to eat food properly? I see them, they put big amounts of food on their plates and they chew it off the fork. Have you seen that? Now, I don't know about John Banks' parents, but mine taught me that the fork was actually what you're supposed to use to get the food from plate to mouth, and they didn't call other people rats for the way they ate. Now, over at rival station News Talk ZB the same day, they were also counting their blessings on COVID-19. Fierce debate, fair opinion. It's Kerry MacGyver Mornings on News Talk ZB. All that nonsense going on in the States last week, it looked like it was shaping up to be 2020 redux. But if we focused on what was happening in this country, 
it was a glorious summer, made all the more glorious by watching and hearing stories of the lockdowns in other parts of the world. And for News Talk ZB's Kerry McIver, it was personal. Her family in London had just got back home through managed isolation. Like literally, it's it's heaven on earth. And their friends back in London cannot believe the lifestyle the family's enjoying here. We are in a very privileged position. Obviously, we want to keep it like that. It was a bit of a change from a year ago when she was bullishly telling her listeners this. The news and you. The coronavirus does not concern me any more than any other flu does. I would happily travel to London tomorrow. I'm hazarding a guess that it's the reaction to this latest virus that will cause the most damage rather than the virus. Now. And last July, Kerem Kiver didn't approve of the strict measures that made the heavenly summer possible. Chances are we've already had COVID in the community. The public health system wasn't overwhelmed. The few ice skating rinks we have in the country weren't filled to the ceiling with corpses. It's reprehensible bullshit that's coming out of this government. Anyhow, by last week, with her own family safely home, Kerry McIver was on the warpath over the government fast-tracking some entertainers stranded in Australia. So it really galls me when I see the Prime Minister saying she will look at finding a practical solution to getting the bloody Wiggles into the country. But while some believe the Wiggles gigs must go on, Kerry McIver's ZB colleague Martin Devlin was angry that the International Olympic Committee seemed determined that the 2020 Olympic Games must go on as well, even though we've already run out of 2020. I want to hear the International Olympic Committee once again just blow hot air up the idiocy of still holding the Games when the whole world is in the grip of a pandemic. The irresponsibility of thinking... That getting every country on earth together in one place right now is the best thing for world health and preventing the spread of this plague? That's your plan? Good old ICC, eh? Money-grubbing, trough-sucking, gravy-train-oozing bunch of self-entitled twats. Now there, an emotional Martin Devlin briefly mixed up the IOC with the ICC, the governing body of world cricket, which is not big in Japan and not to blame for the Tokyo Olympics. But last March, Martin Devlin was less concerned about what he now calls a plague. I don't believe it's a pandemic. A pandemic killed almost 100 million people at the end of the First World War. That's a pandemic. Being a talkback host, it seems, means never having to say you're wrong or sorry, unless you're John Banks, as we'll hear later. Now, last weekend, ironically, it fell to Martin Devlin to break the news to ZB listeners of the first COVID case in the community since November, a task he seemed to relish. I love when this happens. Give me the sting! This is News Talk ZB Breaking News. And I get to read it and pretend that I'm into into kind of news guy. In all seriousness, health officials are responding to what is believed to be a probable new case of community transmission of CV-19 in Northland. And that night, News Hub at 6 summed it up like this. The thing we were all dreading has finally happened again. And few among us would have more reason to dread more COVID in the community than the nation's reporters and editors. The news media had a fraught 2020, doing essential work while others stayed home and copping criticism for the public while covering a crisis, which also threatened to extinguish their jobs and put their employers out of business. So spare a thought for them if we have another outbreak. And the anti-vaccine conspiracists in Whangarei that night were thinking of them last Sunday while they heckled News Hub reporter Madison Reedy and held up signs behind her during her live cross saying things like media lies and news grubs. 
And it does seem that people are getting the message to come out and get tested in this area. This has been pretty busy with cars queuing up behind me tonight, although, as you can probably see, not everyone is convinced. Madison Reedy live from Whangarei. Now, that day, it was a year almost to the day that New Zealand's first ever case of COVID-19 was announced back in 2020, prompting panic buying of toilet paper and pasta in Auckland and the front-page Herald headline, Pandemonium. So one year on, we've learned from that, haven't we? I've seen uh, supermarkets already shelves lost um, toilet paper again. Really? It just um, it doesn't make any sense. Oh dear. Whangarei's Mayor Cheryl Mai on Morning Report last Monday. Well, people in the north are currently anxiously waiting to see if the latest cases have been isolated or not and if mass testing in the area picks up any more infections. A reminder that we may have crushed the curve in 2020, but the virus is still out there in 2021. Meanwhile, there is one talk radio host who won't be having a say on all this on the air now, even though he thought he had truth and God on his side. Some of the other radio stations, state radio, fillings you listen to, it's 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 total indoctrination. That's what it is. That was former politician and former part-time talk radio host as of last Wednesday. John Banks, and there he was not in a state radio state of mind last week on the Magic Talk station, where he was filling in on the Magic Talk morning show for the regular host Peter Williams, and John Banks took it upon himself to rebadge the show as Truth Radio. The left media control New Zealand thinking, the biased media, you see, the good thing when you're tuned into Magic Talk mornings, and I'm filling in, it's Truth Radio, it's factual it's very educational, and it's unbiased. Now, that's a bit of a red flag for the bosses at Magic Talk that the summer break fill-in guy is rejigging the editorial direction and political orientation of the station. Last Wednesday, it was a provocative caller called Richard that put paid to Banksy's time behind the Magic Talk mic. And a warning, this bit contains a lot more than just traces of racism. Yeah, and this notion that Marriott victims... They're victims of their own genetic background. They are genetically predisposed to crime, alcohol, and underperformance educationally. They are Stone Age people from a Stone Age culture, and I'm not interested one bit, and neither have my children been interested in their Stone Age culture. Oh, just a minute. Just a minute. Just a minute indeed. And while it sounded like John Banks was pulling Richard up short there before he could make it any worse, John Banks went on to make it much worse himself. Your children need to get used to their Stone Age culture because if their Stone Age culture doesn't change, these people will come through your bathroom window. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Richard. So uh, thanks for the call. Uh, these people, you, 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 your children, Richard, need to get used to it. It, it is your children's issue as well. Well, one listener in a car who happened to hear that and record it then posted that bit on TikTok as a video, and that started doing the rounds on social media, getting a much wider audience than Magic Talk could hope to get for its non-racist content on a good day. 
But after that, Wednesday quickly became a very bad day for Magic Talk and MediaWorks, as companies including Spark, Vodafone and Kiwi Bank withdrew advertising support. And New Zealand Cricket, which recently did a deal to get test match coverage onto the station, threatened to review its relationship with Magic Talk should strong action not be taken. Soon after that, MediaWorks announced that John Banks would be replaced by Magic Talk's nighttime host Leah Panapa before the return of Peter Williams next week. MediaWorks also pointed to the fact, though, that John Banks had already apologised on the air, in their words, unreservedly, though John Banks' apology had quite a few reservations. When you're broadcasting, you're talking to producers, you're talking to bosses, you're talking to Lindsay... Uh, you're looking at ad breaks coming up, you're counting down seconds on a clock, and I didn't pick it up at the time. I spoke to people later in the show who disagreed with the man, and I picked it up then. However, this wasn't enough to demonstrate that his comments were wrong and racist. His comments were wrong, and they were racist, and they have no place on this broadcast. This is Truth Radio. We don't deliver gratuitous insults to people. But in that same show alone, there were some pretty gratuitous insults from John Banks, as we'll hear. But even before the social media storm gathered strength and the sponsors and advertisers made their views known, Magic Talk's own listeners let John Banks know what they thought with a good deal more grace than he himself displayed. For example, here's Anne, who's 84 years old and a regular listener. I just had to come on and ask you why you didn't correct more strongly that man that said Maori are genetically predisposed to having less intelligence than European Oh, I, I didn't. I'm, I apologise to you and to uh, the listening audience. I didn't pick that up. It is simply not true. To Anne, John Banks made this plea. And I'm asking all the educated Maori this morning that are tuned in, they're listening in the thousands, uh, to stand up and be counted. But if they were listening, they would have heard his dismissive response to one listener's text expressing disgust soon after. Uh, Banksy, get with the modern times. Stop calling Maori them. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh my God. God, stop calling Mary them. I don't call Mary them. Well, actually, John Banks did do that quite a bit in parts of the show that day that didn't end up on social media. If you want to talk about colonialism, the baseline is this. Allowing these people to drink booze as much as they like when they like, to smoke dope any time of the day, to have all their problems attended to by the government in the, in the, in the form of a social welfare check, has put them on this slippery slope. And later, unprompted, John Banks also weighed in with this. I think that Pacific Island families do a better job generally of uh, raising their kids than Maori families do. Uh, although, although there's a disproportionate and huge number of young Pacific Island people uh, in our prisons. Another of the callers who called in to call out John Banks was Sean in Kaikohe. It just doesn't stack up. Criticism like that is unwarranted. Oh, oh Sean, Sean, uh, no one's going to come onto this broadcast and criticise Maori as a race of human persons because I know some fabulous Maori people, and uh, so that's not going to happen. And most of the people that live in Kaikoui are really good Maori people, the Maori people there. But Kaitaia, on the other hand, said John Banks had some real bad buggers. 
I mean, we've got a substrata of people in Kaitaia that are completely out of control. The only control they have is the control they get when they're out of control on electric puha. But, but, but listen, Sean, I want you to know we'll never denigrate Maori here because we live with them. They're good human persons of the world, and mostly they're fabulous parents doing a great job. So that we're not going to get criticism like that. But we're going to be honest with each other here, Sean. Now, the reason that John Banks was talking about all this stuff on the air in the first place and that racist Richard picked up the phone to him was that John Banks had claimed controversial outgoing Oranga Tamariki boss Groenje Moss had been forced from her job by influential Māori. Now, that's the bottom line. A honky from the UK. We don't want her. They wouldn't use that terminology, but that's what they believe and that's what they would say to each other over their cups of tea. But it was John Banks who was happy to put that racial slur in their mouths over the air on MediaWorks Magic Talk Station last Wednesday. Now, as we heard, John Banks later said he only realised he'd caused offence when it was brought to his attention. But reading a listener's text when closing his show, he was dismissive of those pointing out just how offensive he had been. Jesus, this is disgusting, Banksy. What's disgusting? We're just talking the truth here. Everyone's had a fair run. Everyone can say what they think as long as they believe it. But if it's wrong, they're going to be caught and pulled up short by me. And another person pointing out that he failed to do exactly that was dismissed by John Banks like this. I'm so disappointed at the call I just heard. Incredibly racist, painting the entire Maori culture as genetically inferior. Oh my God, what program have you been listening to? Now, unlike John Banks, that listener understood exactly what they'd heard and what John Banks himself had said on the air. Now, MediaWorks and Magic Talk's bosses couldn't know on Wednesday, of course, what he was likely to say, but having given him the gig, they must have known his track record, because it's far from the first time John Banks has outraged the public as a part-time talkback host. Praising his earlier caller and critic Anne, who we heard from earlier, John Banks closed his show with this. She makes a lot of sense. 84-year-olds do. I'll be 84 soon, and I'll still be making a lot of sense. But he won't be doing it on Magic Talk or any other radio network that values its reputation and its audience anytime soon. Now, MediaWorks and Magic Talk's bosses couldn't know on Wednesday, of course, what he was likely to say, but having given him the gig, they must have known his track record, because it's far from the first time John Banks has outraged the public as a part-time talkback host. MediaWorks recently installed Chief Executive Cam Wallace emailed staff on Thursday to say John Banks would not be back on the air on any MediaWorks station while he was in charge of the company. But John Banks going rogue on air wasn't really a bug in the talk radio system, but a feature. Magic Talk's forerunner Radio Live was launched as the new voice of talk radio, an alternative to News Talk ZB and its roster of hosts who lean to the right and pull the biggest commercial talk radio audience in New Zealand. But since MediaWorks rebadged Radio Live as Magic Talk last year, it's become more contrarian and cranky in tone and ploughed the same sort of cultural furrow as its rival, to the point where John Banks, disgraced in public life several times as well as on the air, was deemed a logical choice to fill in for Peter Williams over summer in spite of his track record. So the chief executive will now be aware, if he wasn't already, that the kind of content which attracts a certain audience, callers and controversy also repels other listeners, commercial partners and advertisers.
This past week, normal programming resumed on RNZ National, and that's the reason we're back on air now, along with the likes of Morning Report, Nights, Checkpoint and Nine to Noon. And that means that Catherine Ryan is talking to political pundits from the left and the right every Monday again. And on Monday, the man who leans to the left, Neil Jones, told Catherine that the government has three big challenges this year. COVID-19, obviously, climate change, having talked it up but done little about it so far, and housing. The, the risk you face with housing is people say, well, is that it with anything you announce? Because it, you know, it, it's such a big problem. And sure enough, the tweaks of policy and modest state housing targets announced in Nelson this week were not exactly hailed by the media as any kind of solution to the housing crisis. Indeed, News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper told ZB listeners there's not much the government can actually do. Any government that says it can cure and control a market like the housing market where individual people uh, put their money into, they've got to be joking. And the spiralling cost of houses almost everywhere and the inequality that's growing every day between those who have houses and those who have not has been a rich vein of stories for the media. But who do they think is reading, watching and listening to those stories? Hayden Donnell takes a look. New data out today shows asking prices for houses have doubled in some areas in the past 10 years. It's not just Auckland seeing enormous growth. The regions are red hot too. Madison Reedy joins us now. Madison, where are we seeing the biggest increases? If you're a homeowner in the Bay of Plenty, get out the champagne. Asking prices in Kauro have surged 132% in the past decade. It tops the list as the spot with the biggest capital gain. That was News Hub reporter Madison Reedy introduced a story about record house price rises in the Bay of Plenty on January 19. The story went on to list other places, including the central Hawke's Bay and Hamilton, where house prices have more than doubled over the last 10 years. It's true, those numbers will definitely have homeowners and particularly property investors breaking out the bubbly. But News Hub could equally have urged aspiring first home buyers who have watched prices rise faster than they can save to break out the Elliott Smith soundtrack and strong liquor. Renters could have been advised to crack open an on-discount Ranfurly draft to console themselves over the fact they'll soon be paying even more of their paychecks to their landlords as home ownership stretches further and further out of reach. But News Hub wasn't alone in centering its story's intro on the concerns of existing property owners. Stuff recently began an article on Gisborne's house prices going up 31% in one year like this. If you want big capital gains, Gisborne is the place to be right now. And this is how One News framed a story on rents going down in Queenstown during its surprise COVID-induced housing supply boom last year. The cost of renting has dropped in much of the South Island in the wake of COVID-19. It's been felt most noticeably in Queenstown, where an oversupply of properties is seeing landlords slash prices. And as Jared McCulloch explains, the situation could still get worse. Worse for who? Landlords, sure, but if rent reductions are an example of a situation getting worse, then the one in three New Zealanders living in rental accommodation will be praying for more bad news. More recently, a One News story on an increase in the number of homeowners choosing to sell privately assumed that viewers could be weighing up getting in on the action themselves. As the housing market continues to heat up, more people are turning to private sales. Selling or buying a house privately could mean more money in your back pocket but it's not as easy as you might think. It's not always just who news organisations address their stories to, though, but the stories they choose to tell. This News Hub article from Diana Vesic honed in on a tranche of new housing being built in the West Auckland suburb of Te Atatū. 
Instead of extolling the benefits of dense new housing close to the city, it focused on existing homeowners who had these sorts of concerns. Auckland Council came up with the new zones in 2010. A decade later, residents are seeing it all with their own eyes and in many cases, straight over their fence. We've got five being built here right on our backyard. Used to be able to see the water and the horses over on the peninsula and you can't see any of that now. Straight over the road, another nine going to be built. Yes, definitely feeling evaded. While it's sad one woman will no longer be able to gaze at horse-filled fields in a suburb 15 minutes away from Auckland city centre, that problem is arguably dwarfed by the benefits of building hundreds of new homes during a housing emergency. NewsHub's story didn't spend any time covering those who might get a foothold on the property market or find an affordable place to rent thanks to the new developments. Maybe that's partly because the majority of New Zealanders still live in owner-occupied houses. But another factor could be at play. During the Black Lives Matter protests in the US last year, when newsrooms were asked to confront their records on race, the reporter Wesley Lowry wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where he accused media organisations of defaulting to a vision of a white, affluent person when they imagine their audience. He wrote, Conversations about objectivity, rather than happening in a virtuous vacuum, habitually focus on predicting whether a given sentence, opening paragraph, or entire article will appear objective to a theoretical reader, who is invariably assumed to be white. Lowry was writing on race, but his broader accusation was that media organisations, whether consciously or not, tend to default to the voices of the privileged. That's not universal. In New Zealand, reporters, including those on NewsHub, Stuff and TVNZ, have by and large done a decent job of covering the victims of the housing crisis as well. In a recent feature for the spin-off, Alex Bray looked at the downsides of the bubbly-busting house price surge in the Bay of Plenty, particularly the town of Kawado. He found residents living in substandard, overcrowded accommodation, struggling to pay their double-digit rent rises. Home ownership wasn't even on the horizon. And it's worth noting that Madison Reedy followed up her January 19 article with another focus squarely on the concerns of first-home buyers. It began like this. Well, if you're trying to break into the country's overheated housing market, you might be out of luck this year. Economists are predicting prices will rise even more in 2021 compared to last year. Madison Reedy is here with the numbers. Madison. Westpac economists are forecasting a huge 15% increase in national house prices this year. Despite these examples, it's telling that when media organisations address their audience directly, they often gravitate to the perspective of property owners. For every intro barely containing its excitement over record house price rises, there are thousands of families who give up on home ownership or stare down the barrel of a lifetime of ever-rising rents. Newsmakers could stand to ask a question more often before going to air. Whose voice is being amplified here? And conversely, whose voice is going unheard? Hayden Donnell there looking at how some stories about our red-hot market for housing often zero in on who has the houses, not the have-nots. If you sneak a peek at a political journalist's diary or their wall planner, one of the first entries for the year will be Ratana. Every year for the past 25 years, the annual celebrations at Ratana Pa, just south of Whanganui, have kicked off the political year, a fair bit before the Waitangi commemorations and before MPs and journalists descend on Wellington for the parliamentary year. 
that Atana ceremonies usually attract the invited political party leaders, including the Prime Minister, as well as Māori leaders, Komatua, and of course the Morehu, the followers of the Ratana Church and faith from around the country. But this year, only a handful of MPs with ties to the faith attended this week's events, and no other politicians were among the Manuheri were invited guests. And that was due to disagreements at the PA and among the church's executive committee about how to run the event this year and wider rifts within the church over its future leadership. And all that meant that far fewer reporters turned up as well. But one who did was Stuff's Joel Maxwell, who reported this. Internal disagreements also appeared to have spilled over for the media with the organisers requiring Stuff to sign a media accreditation agreement that would make Stuff run a lengthy disclaimer prominently at the top of any story. The disclaimer stated that the opinions of people interviewed in the story did not necessarily reflect the official policy of the church or its national executive. But one former reporter writing about Ratana in the Whanganui Chronicle last week, Limara Mamaglocklin, said the absence of politicians and the media this year may actually be no bad thing. The former RNZ reporter, who's now communications manager for the iwi Nā Tangata Tiaki o Whanganui, said that she'd been uncomfortable with politicians taking centre stage at Ratana. And... The media portrayal of the event is often whitewashed and their presence at times feels intrusive. But surely an important and colourful event in the Māori calendar and the political one should be read about, heard about and seen by people by the mainstream media. So over the years in my role as a Māori news journalist for RNZ, I've gone to Ratana um, multiple times. What I notice every year is you've got all these hokainga people milling around, wakawanaungatanga happening, kotahitanga, lots of chatting, lots of um, people catching up and then you sort of have this huge contingent of um, political reporters, mainstream media, all huddling around in a particular place, um, waiting for the politicians. It's really clear that the entire focus is on um, the politicians, is on the Prime Minister. It doesn't really feel like they are there to shine some light or to inform the wider public on what happens at Ratana or the people of Ratana, or, or even sharing some history about Tahu Pōtiki. It's like um, very narrow focus on what the politicians are going to do that day, what they're going to say, what they're going to bring to the table. And I've always felt really uncomfortable with it. In the years that I've worked there, it's become really clear to me that um, the newsworthiness of Ratana to mainstream media comes down to the Prime Minister being there and other politicians and what kind of story they're going to sell to try and get the Māori vote. We've we've seen similar sort of criticism, similar feelings about uh, coverage of Waitangi down the years where people have said they're here for the um, in past years for conflict or for for politics and to see what the the political debate will be, not, not for the actual event itself. Does that create some of the same sort of weariness? Yeah, Waitangi, a similar thing happens there. I remember last, not last Waitangi, but the Waitangi before, a series of stories came out from the Pai Pai, all of them covering what the politicians had said. I couldn't find one story that just articulated everything that was said on the Pai from people from Te Tai Tokido. You know, the iwi leaders, Kōrero, didn't feature as prominently as what politicians say and I think we need to be careful when we just give airtime to promises that our politicians bring to the table at those events. I think we need to be using our platforms to highlight how the Hokanga is feeling about the government's performance.
you know, mainstream media should take the opportunity to build relationships with some of these people at these events and focus on a, a bigger picture, paint, paint the bigger picture. But it's a bit difficult for mainstream media reporters to do that if, for example, at the moment, you know, have this particular circumstance with the administration of the church where they're obviously wary about having the media, in fact, outsiders of any kind, being there at a time when there's division among the church. I mean, difficult for the media to do it if they're not really (laughs) being restricted in their reporting and given that signal that actually, for their own reasons, the people running the show might not really want the media and their scrutiny on the ground there. Perhaps we need to understand the waka papa to that thought and where that comes from because I know that there were Māori media at Atana this year. You know, the church welcomed Māori media this year and Māori reporters were there telling stories. I think we need to reflect on past coverage of Atana and ask ourselves why there was that lack of trust perhaps in mainstream media on the part of Atana or on the part of um, members of the church yeah, and indeed in your column you said um, the media portrayal of the event is often whitewashed and the presence at times of media feels intrusive. Um, do you mean that perhaps uh, the mainstream media has a Pakeha focus and are you saying there that they're actually avoiding the real issues? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, how can you tell the full side of the story if you don't understand what half the people there are saying? How can you report on what's important to Datana or kind of the discussion between the two? if you're just relying on um, stand-ups with media um, next to the timepada. When I say whitewash, I just mean that the focus is always Pākehā and, and the stories are written for a Pākehā audience. And, and the, I mean, one of the biggest stories that came out of Rātana was Baby Neve on the Pai Pai being super cute. And I understand why that's interesting for the wider public, but... Man, when you think about the enduring relationship between the Atana and Labour and you think about all of these years of, of sort of discussions and trying to progress things with our Māori, and, um, I just think it's a shame that when we get to these events, it, I don't think that the focus is where it should be. Well, finally, Lemarama, in your column you did say uh, at the end, after 2020, perhaps we could all do with a bit of a reset and a chance to uh, replenish our wairua. Um Do you think next year... Things will be perhaps back back to normal, and we will see those big name politicians. It will be that, and uh, you know the media will be back um, as it has been in the past. I do hope that the politicians return to that, and I do think it is ultimately an important opportunity for Te Ao Māori to um, essentially confront the government over outcomes for Māori. So on one hand, you know I'm just trying to acknowledge room for improvement in terms of media coverage of the events and the domination of, or in the way they dominate, there is more to Datana than what is usually portrayed and what is um, highlighted in mainstream media. And um, I wouldn't like to see this set a precedent at all for future Hui. That's Lee Marama McLaughlin, former RNZ reporter, now the communications manager for the iwi Natangata Tiaki o Whanganui and a columnist every week in the local paper, the Whanganui Chronicle. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.